Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. When you're hiding something, what's your tell? Do your hands shake? Do you gulp? Perhaps you cock an eyebrow, avert your eyes, start to sweat. Do you fidget or rub your hands together? Maybe you even let out a nervous laugh. <laughs> you might not even be aware of the ways in which your body communicates that it's under stress from what you're saying or what you're hearing. Former FBI Special Agent Joe Navarro is fluent when it comes to reading body language. Thanks to his expertise and his tireless efforts, he was able to uncover a spy ring that would have changed the course of the Cold War and brought an end to the United States. And it all began with the quiver of a hand holding a cigarette. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. The year was 1988. Ronald Reagan was president, and the United States was in the midst of heightened geopolitical tension with the Soviet Union. Special Agent Joe Navarro was assigned a routine interview with a man named Roderick Ramsey. Ramsey had previously been stationed at a U.S. Army base in Germany. It was at that very base that retired U.S. Army Sergeant Clyde Conrad had been arrested by German authorities on suspicion of committing espionage. Agent Navarro went into the interview believing Ramsey was merely a witness to the crimes. However, all that changed when Agent Navarro noticed Ramsey's body language began to change when Conrad's name was mentioned. Agent Navarro ultimately interviewed Ramsey 42 times opening up one of the most high-stakes espionage investigations in FBI history that, without Joe's incredible work, would have made the West vulnerable to a disastrous Soviet attack. Today, retired FBI agent Joe Navarro joins me with a look back at his skilled intelligence work and discusses how the detection of small nonverbal cues led to the arrest of a dangerous traitor. Joe, you wrote about a phenomenal case in your career during your 25 years in the FBI called Three Minutes to Doomsday, an agent, a traitor, and the worst espionage breach in U.S. history. And it detailed, in part, your over 42 interviews of a U.S. service member who had been selling military secrets to the Soviet Union and how you knew that he was lying. Um, boy, that brings back memories, uh, and not all uh, fond, 
you know, it, they, the book was something that I actually uh, had difficulty writing. First of all, because it was high, the, the, the content was highly classified. So we had to get that approved. And secondly, it, it was a case that I worked for about 10 years and it, it took a, a, a toll on me. Um, and part of that toll was knowing that this group of spies, including Rod Ramsey, had compromised the ultimate defense system of the United States, which was the nuclear defense system, that they had compromised the nuclear go codes. And, you know, one thing is to work a bank robbery. You can have those all day long. But when you're when you're dealing with multiple nation states, when you're dealing with the security of West Germany, England, France, and, and so forth, and the United States, and you have this individual in front of you who took it upon himself to um, violate his trust and put the United States in jeopardy, it, um, it, it had its effect on me, I, I, I have to say. And uh, and I was glad that we were able to to apprehend him, um, and and find out who else was involved, and and that took uh, that took a, a a while. May I ask, Joe? Um, so, given the toll that you just discussed during yeah. the interview and investigation process, yeah. did you know? Um, and you know, outside of legally, outside of a prosecutable case that you were building, but did you know that this person was guilty, and therefore part of that toll was? the intent and intention of bringing him to justice or from the beginning throughout, were you trying to ascertain who in fact was involved that had compromised the security of the United States? Yeah. So no, I, we didn't know. We didn't know. We knew what happened was a, a gentleman by the name of Clyde Lee Conrad was arrested by the German authorities as a result of information that was provided to him by U.S. Army Intelligence Security Command that he had been uh, involved in, in espionage. Um, he was involved with another man named Zoltan Zabel. These were American soldiers working out of Germany. What nobody knew was who else was involved because usually spies work by themselves. The, the more that people know, the more likely they're going to be compromised. So the assumption was that, that there were only two people involved. The only reason that I was uh, sent to go out and talk to this uh, Roderick Ramsey, who was living here in, in, in Tampa at the time, was the military wanted to find out everybody that had worked at uh, the base where the espionage had taken place. And uh, when I went to to see Rod Ramsey along with my army counterpart, the assumption was that he was a witness. But there was there was just something about him that um, the times that I mentioned the name of Clyde Lee Conrad, he was smoking at the time and his cigarette would shake. And I had been studying body language at that point since, well, since the 1970s. And I knew that there was something wrong, that when somebody, um, you know, the, the brain is exquisite. We reveal in real time comfort and discomfort. Um, and uh, the minute that name of Clyde Lee Conrad was mentioned, his cigarette would shake. And he did that several times. 
And so my takeaway from that was what is causing this behavior? If, if this person is a mere witness, then the mention of that name should be no different than mentioning a glass of milk. And, uh, and as a result of that, I decided to seek permission based on body language to pursue this individual. And I was granted authority to, to see him uh, what initially was going to be five more times. But as it turns out, as you said earlier, it turned into 42 interviews over a year. And Joe, what did you learn? What did his body language reveal to you? Yeah, so that first interview um, didn't reveal very much because obviously he was uh, nervous that that, uh, we were there and so forth. But in, in subsequent interviews, one of the things that I had been studying was that we often... Um, reflect through our uh, through our faces and our gestures when things are bothering us. So when he was emphatic about things, you would see gestures that what we call defy gravity. So the the thumbs pop up, right? So the the eyebrows arch up in the same way that when we greet somebody, we go hey, and when we don't like them, we just go hey. Um, and there were certain things that he would he was willing to answer. But there were certain things that you could tell that he was holding back. And so we weren't really looking for deception. We were looking for what kind of questions we were asking and then how emphatic uh, were they in his response, number one. And number two is which questions, for instance, caused him uh, what we call psychological discomfort. And one of the things that I, I noticed about Rod was when when I would ask a question dealing with something that potentially delved into him conspiring with uh, with uh, Clyde Lee Conrad, um, as he was listening to my question, and it was a, a question that uh, he perceived as uh, doing him harm, he he would shift his jaw to the left. He would just shift his jaw to the left. And this is not that unusual. I, you know, since retiring, I, I've been working with uh, corporate executives and negotiators, and you often see that when somebody brings up a, um, a point of contention. One of the things we look for is, is somebody in that negotiation group jaw shifting? Because if they're jaw shifting, they're not liking what's being asked. And they're not asked. And if they're not like, liking that question, we want to know why. And, and, and that was the critical thing with, with Rod. And in a way, he was revealing to me nonverbally what things to pursue because he didn't like to talk about them. And so I knew I was on to, uh, uh, to something. And then, you know, within five interviews, um, by his own admissions, not confession, by his own admissions, he had revealed, for instance, he it, rather than ask him, um, and you, you've had other guests have, have talked about interviewing techniques, and rather than ask him directly about how much he earned and how he spent it and, and so forth, um, what I did was, hey, you know, like on the weekends, what did you do? And, you know, he said, well, I would go uh, uh, to the clubs and I would do this and, I, you know, I would do that. 
And uh, he even mentioned that uh, they would, uh, which is legal in Germany, they would hire uh, prostitutes. And uh, so we sat down with an accountant and we said, well, go through these numbers. <laughs> and he says, and uh, we figure it out. You know, he's, here's a guy on $188 salary a month at the time. And he's spending $2,500. And so it, it, it was an indirect way of, uh, you know, you could say a clever way of getting the information out of him without putting him up against the wall and, and making him feel like we were uh, honing in on him. And so we got in enough information to figure out that he's getting money from somewhere and large amounts of money. So we were we were on the right track. And then it's just a matter of, um, creating and the other way we use the body language because I know you're interested in this is how did I use my own body language to to put him at ease because it, it's not it's never a pleasurable experience to have an FBI agent in front of you um, and uh, so the things that I would do uh, which was to never sit directly in front of him to always be at an angle to make sure that when we first met, that our emotional uh, state was always the same. So if he was excited about something, I would be excited about something. And so through mirroring and then uh, imposing, uh, because I was of higher status, being an agent and, and, and so forth, um, using my breathing rate and my blink rate to uh, calm him down. So, the, so I was using my body language to modulate him, and then, unbeknownst to him, he was using his body language, as all of us do, to communicate when we're struggling uh, with uh, with something. And so, during the course of these forty-two interviews, did the reason it took forty-two is it because of the volume of information you were gathering, the success rate? Or was it because you weren't getting enough and kept needing more? Mm. That, that's a profound question, Emily, and I, I'm glad you asked it. Part of it had to do with how we convinced him to cooperate with us. Um, he was not willing to outright confess, but we made it seem like we were targeting the uh, Clyde Lee Conrad in Germany, and that we wanted help with with that case. Um, the other issue that immediately came up is um, he was a smart guy, and in his wallet he always carried the telephone number of an attorney. And our greatest fear was that he could at any moment say, "I want an attorney," and then it's over, and it, and and then it's over, and so. For me, it wasn't about getting a confession. For me, it was about creating an atmosphere that would guarantee FaceTime, that would guarantee me that he would be willing to meet with me over and over again, and that it was a pleasant enough experience, and it wasn't uh, uh, threatening, that he would be willing to make admissions to me which in their totality would then be equal to what we call a, a, a confession. And, and so part of that, um, just as an example, 
I, I would say something like, well, in, in your tasks, uh, everyday tasks, what would be some of the things that you did? Well, you know, I handled documents, I copied documents, and I, you know, and I said, well, are, are these important documents or, and then he would go off and, and describe them. And, and of course the statute requires the espionage statute, uh, title 18, 794 requires that the person who is handling them understand that these documents would do severe damage to the United States. And to, to go to somebody and say, did, did you know that these would do severe damage to the United States? Uh, that's almost too harsh. Uh, they might be tempted to say, you know what, this is headed in, in a direction that's going to harm me. And so by slowly getting this information out of him, that's how I, I had to proceed. The other concern was, well, who else was involved? And as it turns out, there were three, four other people, five, six other people involved. And we needed to, uh, to identify those individuals and determine where they are and what possible damage they could still be doing. And so that's why it, uh, uh, why it took so long. Because keep in mind, if he had said at any moment in those initial five interviews, I want my attorney, we would have never identified uh, the other co-conspirators who were, you know, Kelly Church, uh, uh, Jeff Rondeau, and uh, Jeff Gregory, and uh, certainly justice uh, would, would not have, have been done. So it was a, a very slow process, but it had to be slow and methodical. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And now for listeners, can you share about exactly the X's and O's of that case of Rod Ramsey. What was he convicted of exactly? How exactly was he selling these secrets to the Soviets? Yeah, so what they would do, uh, Clyde Lee Conrad was a sergeant in Germany and basically he was the chief librarian, let's say, of all the classified documents for the base, the 8th Infantry Division mechanized in, in Germany. Rod Ramsey went to work for him. Clyde uh, had been already spying for the Hungarian intelligence service who uh, were then passing it on to the Russians for several years. But as soon after he arrived in Germany, Rod was recruited by Clyde to help him steal the documents. And we're not talking about one item at a time. Rod Ramsey was stealing so many documents that they had to rent an apartment to store the secret. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That Emily was the look I <laughs> like had. That body language. <laughs> that body language. Pure shock on my face. I mean, I'm picturing, I'm picturing a U-Haul. 
And I, I'm picturing an, an empty apartment with stacks of documents, and I'm respecting so much the delicate dance you underwent for 42 interviews where this guy just blithely but, chatted about everything that led you guys closer and closer to an actual prosecution yeah. without him ever once asking for an attorney. It's it, Well, and it, it was exactly that, as, as you will articulate, but it was also, a, a lot of this was incredulous. They, it, you know, you were talking, they, they would literally fill a duffel bag, those big, huge military duffel bags of secrets, and just blatantly drag them out <laughs> in front of everybody, pretending that this was... Uh, uh, gear for uh, maneuvers and so forth, and take it to, uh, to, to, to these, these locations. Well, you have to remember, the military at the time had no idea how much was being compromised. Mm -hmm. They thought, from, from the investigation of, of Clyde Lee Conrad, that, yes, there were certain classified documents, Abel Archer uh, was one of them, uh, Op Plan uh, 3200, which is a go-to-war plan and so forth, the, that those had been compromised. No one, I assure you, no one had any idea of the volume. And, and in fact, part of the problem that, that I faced was an institutional problem in that when I first reported to headquarters that, hey, um, Rod said that he had it, they had rented an apartment uh, for nefarious things. And literally headquarters, the, the German uh, intelligence service, the military said that's impossible. In the history of mankind, no one has ever rented a secret apartment to photograph this stuff. And sure enough, we we found it and uh it was shocking it it, it was it, you know the the documents were no longer there but when they talked to the uh the landowner they said oh yeah the, you know this guy used to come in here with boxes and boxes and boxes of material and and you could tell they were they were flashing something this is back when they used 35 millimeter cameras and so the flash would, would go off. And, uh, and uh, the guy said, yeah, I wasn't sure what they were up to, but, you know, they paid on time and, and, and all this stuff. Well, the Army uh, had no idea of that. And so over time, um, I did uh, myself, and, and uh, I have to say, just, just as uh, you were talking about your crew, uh, myself and uh, Mrs. Terry Moody, who's probably one of the best agents I ever worked with, convinced him to admit that he, in fact, had been pitched and recruited by, uh, by Clyde Lee Conrad. But even then, he was reluctant to talk about it uh, because he, he didn't want to harm himself. Um, so it, it was a matter of, of, of extracting uh, this information. And, and probably one of the most interesting points in, in the case came to when we realized we were going through documents, the names of documents, and we realized he couldn't have had access to them, that somebody else had to have gotten them. And that's when we, that's when we really brought the nonverbal stuff uh, to use in a special way. One of the things that I had learned from, from studying uh, nonverbals is that when we like someone, our pupils dilate. They instantly dilate. You have no control over it. 
and you know and if 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 you're a handsome movie star uh you know you lucked out uh, everybody <laughs> everybody's eyes dilate but when something causes us fear and apprehension our peoples tend to constrict and the the efficacy of that from a biological standpoint is that the smaller the aperture the greater the focal length so everything comes into focus so i understood that and rod was unwilling to name who else had assisted him so with the help of the military we put a list of 32 people on like this like a three by five card and we had the name of all 32 uh individuals on each each card and without betraying to him what i was up to one afternoon i just came in and uh and i said uh, hey rod let's just go through this and tell me what you think of each one of these individuals and so i started to flash the cards in front of him what he didn't realize was that on two of the cards Jeff Gregory and Jeff Rondeau's, his pupils constricted and his, and, uh, his uh, eyebrows sort of narrowed. That's what we do when, our, uh, when we see something that could potentially hurt us. So of the 32 cards, he did that on two. And so just based on that, just based on a nonverbal, we... Uh, immediately opened up investigations on on these two individuals and uh, the agents of the uh, uh, US Army Intelligence Security Command went out and interviewed them and they were very very good these agents and they immediately got uh, confessions from them that's two more that we didn't know anything about we didn't know anything about them all we knew is that they had been at this base and uh, and they corroborated what what Rod said about the the, the tonnage, as we call it, of classified uh, uh, documents. Two short questions about that. The first is, is it perceptible to the human eye the slight furrow of the brow and the dilated pupils? Um, I mean, at the risk of of sounding dumb, but is that something that anyone can notice, or did you have? specific cameras that you went to afterward and zoomed in because I wear glasses and yeah. I feel like I'm also oblivious. And so the thought of being <laughs> so finely tuned or attuned yeah. to those tiny messages seems uh, difficult for me, but perhaps is it something that we can pick up on as humans? No, we didn't, we didn't use uh, cameras uh, or anything like that. First of all, the Bureau uh, prohibits the recording of, of any uh, interview. Um, and this is uh, something that you can be taught. I'll give you an example. Earlier today, I was doing a, another uh, uh, podcast, and uh, they were having microphone problems. And uh, the host... <laughs> and <You're> so uh, generous. <laughs> I know, right? And the hostess, uh, oh, she didn't realize that her eyelids were doing eyelid flutter because the microphone wasn't working, and her blink rate went way up. Um, now, but is that similar? Like extreme rage? No, hopefully it no. symbolizes. No, what it patience. says is there's. Yeah, what it says is there's psychological discomfort. The question is why. Now, the, if the equipment's not working, you're going to see psychological discomfort. Um, you you may not have noticed the lip biting. You may not have noticed but the I eyelid did? flutter. Yes. Uh. <laughs> but I did. 
<laughs> now, this is this is an easy read. Um, but if I had asked you a question and said, had you ever traveled to Switzerland on other than an American passport and that causes you any kind of distress, then I would have to ask, why? Why would that question cause you distress? And, um, and so that's how we use body language. Look, there's a misconception out there that you can use body language to detect deception. Now, I've been studying this since the 70s. Um, my book, What Everybody Is Saying, is the number one book on body language in the world. And, it's, and, it's, and it reached that level because of the science that supports it. And one of the things that I have taught from the very beginning is, is uh, as my friend Mark Frank uh, once taught me, there is no Pinocchio effect. There is no single behavior indicative of deception. And uh, there's a lot of people that prattle that out there, and that's rather unfortunate because that has gotten a lot of people in, into trouble when they didn't deserve to do that. Body language can reveal our interest. Body language can reveal our concerns, our hesitation, whether we really like something or not, our fears and our apprehensions, but it cannot reveal uh, deception. And we never used it that way. But one of the exquisitely elegant ways to use it is to, when you're with a suspect, is to then ask questions that are generalized and see which ones cause psychological discomfort. And if we see that, then we have to understand why. And that's all I did with Rod. There was, there was no magic to this. It was just merely posing questions that were slightly inquisitive, but not enough to cause apprehension, except for the fact that he had guilty knowledge. And that guilty knowledge caused the apprehension. The next question is about it as the use of evidence. So you, you yeah. articulated that, for example, his physical reaction to the two cards led to opening an investigation into two suspects that ultimately confessed. Many right. times in law enforcement, the introduction of evidence, if it's a manner inconsistent with, let's say, conventional methods or right. perhaps reliant on a form of expertise, then it's taken in court as just a tip. And the whole point is it's the subsequent evidence that you gather and the subsequent process that you actually bring into court in the persuasive manner. And that way, this this particular evidence capture, this method, is never actually having to be put under question or called under question in the form of a motion, let's say, um, or right. or the like in court. So can you yeah. address that and how behavioral analysis and, and body language is introduced, yeah. if it is, into court or the legal use of it here? Right, so I'm happy to answer that question. And, uh, and, and, and once again, you ask good questions. Uh, let's, let's go back to the, the famous case of Terry versus Ohio, 1968. People think of Terry versus Ohio as a stop and frisk law. The law that said Officer McFadden is walking in the street, I think it was in downtown, somewhere in Ohio, and he sees three guys uh, walking in the sidewalk. And every once in a while, one of the three would venture off and look through a window of a store. 
And then he would come back and he would whisper in the middle of the day to the other two individuals. And then the next one would go to the window and, and take a look and, uh, and so forth. In the end, to make a long story short, Officer McFadden confronted the three and Defendant Mac, uh, Terry had a gun on him. And in fact, they were going to rob the store. They were casing it. It went all the way to the Supreme Court and it is and remains the law of the land. And what the Supreme Court said that if a highly trained officer who has experience can articulate with particularity, two things, articulate and with particularity, those things that they observed that led them to believe that a crime was afoot, that they would allow that into court. And so based on that, the assumption in this case was that we don't know of anybody else that's involved, but we know that classified material is coming from a section that Rod would not have had uh, access to. And so because we were more or less scientific that without any prejudice, we presented him 32 different cards and just looked at his reactions, that he reacted to two of them as I understood it from my expertise, that there was something uh, amiss here, that then that was the predicate, not uh, so much under the criminal statutes, but under the investigative authority of an espionage case, a counterintelligence case, which has broader uh, a application. Um, because the essence of espionage is to keep things very secret. So we had the authority to initiate that investigation, but under the restrictions that existed at the time, we would have been limited to a certain period of time, uh, which I can't reveal because that's classified, but it's not very long. And it was limited to knock on the door, introducing yourself and saying, can we have an hour of your time to talk to you. So it permitted that. It didn't permit uh, wiretapping or uh, seizing of evidence or anything uh, else, else like that. And that's what they did. The, the, the military guys uh, with some FBI agents went to the residence of these two individuals, Jeff Gregory, Jeff Rondeau. One was in Georgia, one was in Alaska. And they sat down and talked to him about what Rod had said. What was totally unexpected was that these two on initial contact would just say, yeah, I helped them spy. <laughs> it's like, okay, can this get any worse? Uh, yeah. For them. <laughs> well, because, yeah, for them, can it get worse? Because the investigation continued and we were trying to be as scientific as, as possible in eliciting information, not contaminating it. And then we get to the point where uh, Rod, out of his own volition, said that he had compromised the nuclear go codes. And, and that was a whole new level of bad. Keep in mind, most espionage cases, the worst, the worst that uh, a spy has done in the past is um, during the uh, Soviet era, they passed on the, um, the secrets to the atomic uh, weapons. 
to the Soviets, and uh, and later on, they might reveal that oh, we had a spy working for us in the Soviet Union and so forth. This is the first time that we learn that they had compromised the actual device that is used to launch nuclear weapons. And that is as bad as it gets. And that called into question an unbelievable amount of uh, things that we had in place security of facilities, security of nuclear weapons, security of our communication system, communi security of our, um, our national command and control authority. I, I cannot begin to express enough how frightening um, this was at the time because it had never happened before. Um, one thing is to give away, okay, this is, if you're sophisticated you can build a nuclear weapon okay that you know the uh the rosenbergs and others uh took care of that but this was how the united states defended itself and in fact when uh when finally we we um the the military did the damage assessment and uh, they had to testify in court the, their testimony was that if hostilities had uh, broken out, that the United States, the West, would have been defeated within three days, period. That's it. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And so what was the reaction and, and how, because, you know, I have to say that Shock. a lot of the, a lot of the pop culture, we focus yeah. on Nicholas Elliott. We focus on, on the Aldridge. We focus on the, you know, Red Jane. There have been many celebrated or storied spies in history, especially right. between uh, England and the allied nations and, and the Soviets, as you mentioned. Yeah. And Rod Ramsey isn't usually a top five name mentioned, but to your point, the most horrifying part is what exactly was compromised. Yeah. So the the and and, and part of part of it why he, Rod Ramsey's never really mentioned. I I have to be honest is because it wasn't a case that came out of Washington. It wasn't a case that came out of London. It was a case that came out of Tampa, Florida. Mm -hmm. And the, the military, of course, when I say, you know, what was the reaction? It was shock. Germany, okay, our strongest ally, Germany, in court, ad, ad, had to admit that this espionage ring had left them with two options. The first one is total capitulation. And the second option was to use nuclear weapons on their own soil to keep the Soviets out had hostilities broken out. Now just, just 
ponder that for a minute. This was an open court. That's what they, they that that would be like us saying, okay, everything east of the Appalachians, we're going to have to blow up because they're landing on the beaches. It it it, it was uh, it, it was shocking, and I think the the fact that this was a case that was tried, adjudicated, and and handled in Florida, it didn't have the the high profile um, uh, taste uh, that if something had happened in Washington. Oh, my gosh, you would have had every politician uh, uh, getting involved. You would have had people in the intelligence community and, and so forth. But it happened somewhere else. And so I think that affected it. And the second thing was the military, I think, was highly embarrassed that these individuals were able to get not just secret and top secret, but top secret special word access documents, stuff that dealt with our satellites, stuff that dealt with um, atomic uh, devices and, uh, and other uh, uh, protocols. And I think there was a lot of embarrassment. There was, there was an active attempt to just, okay, let's just, let, let's not let the news uh, and other people know too much about this because if somebody looks under the sheets, they're going to say, what were you people doing? How could, how could, in the end, eight, nine spies, right, have taken advantage of our most secure uh, systems and placed the United States and our allies in jeopardy? It is unconscionable. It's unpardonable. So I think everybody just try to uh, to, um, to to play it down, and that's and 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 uh, and that's not just my opinion. That that is the opinion that was expressed by a, a a lot of people that something this gross needed to be attenuated because, I mean, how could the generals not know what was going on, and why didn't they take greater steps to to prevent this? Um, the the amount of breaches that uh, dealt with we, we knew these individuals were drinking on the job using drugs doing all sorts of things uh, violations of the military code and there was very little being done and I think I think that was highly embarrassing and not just that is how do you go to our allies and say yeah you know what you thought you were being protected by us not so much. Frightening. Frightening. It renders us incredibly fallible, which to your point is our country's worst nightmare. Do yep. you know or do you do you think that Rod and his co-conspirators and co-actors, that they appreciated the gravity of what they had compromised and what they had stolen? You know, you're the first person to ever ask that uh, that question. And it's, and it's a, uh, it is a profound question. I think one of the things that I found in, in talking to these individuals was how many of them were in the military in these positions, but somehow had made it through and they were severely flawed of character. These are individuals who were willing to stay Deal, who were willing to lie, who were cheating in, in many different areas. 
and here they were placed in a uh, in in positions of uh, of trust. I I think Rondeau and Gregory probably in the end uh, realized how bad things were, and they uh, definitely had a conscience. Rod Ramsey, uh, he is, uh, if you're familiar with psychology, he's what we call a Robert Hare uh, psychopath, has no conscience, uh, is willing to steal, lie, cheat, do whatever, live as a social predator, violate rules, no empathy uh, really whatsoever. Um, and, and the other person that I haven't mentioned, which was Kelly Church, who was yet another generation of, of, of spies working there that we identified through, through Rod, um, she also was um, a, a, a psychopath, no remorse, no conscience. And, uh, and interestingly enough, one of the things that I have found uh, over my career, females inherently are more difficult to interview and are tougher during interviews than, uh, than men, uh, hands down, across the board. Can you describe how and why? Well, we do, we don't know the why. Uh, for instance, Ethel uh, Ethel uh, uh, Rosenberg, uh, the government offered her and her husband, "Hey, if you'll just tell us what happened, you know, you can avoid the the electric chair." She's the one that convinced her husband, "Do not talk." <laughs> okay. Over the years, as as we've gone back and looked at, uh, uh, certainly in my review of uh, female spies, for instance, um, British spies that were landed in France prior to uh, uh, the landing, mm. those females outlasted the males when in captivity and under torture. I don't know what it is. I can tell you from my own experience and in, in, in looking at some of the spy cases um, in, in the United States, the names escape me now, but the women were always the toughest. In the case of Kelly Church, she was, as, uh, as, as I remember <laughs> saying to one agent, that woman is tough as woodpecker lips. I mean, she was tough. She was just unrelenting in in her resolve not to cooperate, not to help, not to give us any information, and uh, actually misled the uh, the investigation for about a year um, until we could uh, investigate it. Um, there's there's just something, and I there aren't that many female spies uh, that we know of, but I always found it interesting that from the interview standpoint invariably they were the the uh, the the toughest to uh, to interview do you have any statistics or anecdotes on what occurs in the dynamic when a female interviewer is interviewing a female interviewee and whether that changes yeah. things or becomes celebrity deathmatch <laughs> i've never heard that one but uh, <laughs> i don't i don't have yeah i don't have any st statistics on it because you know in the bureau you uh you just get a ticket and say today you got to go out and talk to this person mm -hmm. so it's it's not one of these things where we say okay we're going to take our best female interviewers and and we're we're going to uh, put them there i don't see where there would be a 
if if you have a good interviewer, I I don't see uh, uh, any any difference. It's just that the resistance, the willingness to resist, in my experience, has always been greater um, with uh, with women. And I have to say, the same thing happened in the German experience when I went back and looked at. Um, the the records of uh, of of the Germans, uh, especially in in France, when they were in occupation and they took down our uh, British spies, uh, those women were uh, just unbelievable at uh, at resisting uh, torture and resisting uh, implicating others, uh, where a lot of the men just flipped uh, like a switch. You know? At the risk of sounding glib, I'm sure. Any woman could tell you why that is. <laughs> I'd like to make a point about, because since I am an attorney, something that interested me about your explanation about the legal introduction, right? When you say, um, you know, the, the particularity, that language is mirrored in a lot of threshold documents um, needed among the legal landscape, right. whether it's search warrants or arrest warrants right. or even the civil procedure threshold for filing a case. So it makes sense to me that it's used in that parallel manner, which is essentially yeah. as a the threshold, the predicate for this next step of the investigation. So it's not necessarily its relationship to the piece of evidence. It's no. its relationship to the next step that law enforcement step. is It, it allows you to cross the step. And in the case of yeah. Terry versus Ohio, it was profound because basically what they said is, we'll allow you to violate the Fourth Amendment right to search and seizures, which was huge. Uh, during stop and frisk. In my case, it was the predicate for a lot. You know, most people think the FBI can just go out and do anything they want. No, we have to have a predicate for going to somebody's door and knocking on the door and say, may we interview you because it's voluntary. And so the 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 squinting of the eyes and the narrowing of the pupils, that just let me know that I was on to something. Mm -hmm. I still have to justify it and I still have to f complete the procedures of you go and talk to them. And if they let you in, great. And if you, they don't, then we then we've got to figure out something else. We lucked out that in both cases. Um, the interviewers uh, proceeded. And, and let me say this, you know, body language doesn't necessarily, uh, it's used investigatively, but it's not conclusive of anything. And I don't think there's any court that says, oh, well, you know, uh, we know that lip compression is indicative of um, of, of stress. And we know that, for instance, in, in uh, I had a case in Yuma, Arizona, where the mother was hiding her son who had uh, killed a New Jersey police officer. And every time I asked her, is it possible that your son sneaks into the house and her hand covered the, the supersternal notch, which is this little area below the neck. And, um, you know, you can't introduce that into into court. That almost has no meaning into court. But if you understand body language and you understand that uh, that most people touch their neck, grab their neck when they feel threatened, especially the the super the neck dimple, um, that gives you a clue. It gives you a clue that why is it that every time I mention her son and being in the house, she covers her neck. 
And that's the only inference you can draw from that, that there's some sort of psychological discomfort. And in fact, I got her to agree to, for me to search the house. And, and there he was in the closet like E.T. Uh, hiding under uh, some blankets and uh, like a little stuffed animal. What was frightening to me, because I was so young and naive, was um, he had a gun. And uh, we we didn't have bulletproof vests back then, and it, it was that that one was uh, yeah the the body language was spot on, the uh, the danger factor was uh, was was quite high, and and that's really how we use uh, nonverbals. We'll be right back with more of this story. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Joe, I could listen to you forever, all day in rapture. You are a fascinating <laughs> wealth of information. I also love the idea of you analyzing me. What am I telling you now? What am I telling you now? <laughs> uh, in conclusion, however, can yeah. you leave us with, you mentioned a few myths earlier about, yeah. you know, movement does not indicate a deception and the like. What can right. you leave listeners with as we all go back and try to analyze our spouses <laughs> and our bosses and our colleagues? What are some yeah. things we should be looking for and what are some things we should not be looking for? Ab absolutely. Well, there, there's a lot of myths. And, uh, you know, one of the myths is, uh, you know, that if you cross your arms across your chest that uh, you're blocking and so forth. And uh, as I wrote for Psychology Today, arm crossing is a comforting behavior. It's a self-soothing behavior. It allows us to deal with uh, waiting in line, waiting for the movie to start, listening to somebody that's interesting, or even in an argument, um, it's, it's self-comforting. The other myth out there, and it's one that's been around since uh, the late 70s, is that if somebody looks up and to the left and down and to the right, they're being deceptive. Um, there's absolutely no science to support that. It is uh, sheer nonsense. Our eyes do go in different directions as we access our memories, but in no way does it reflect that we're being deceptive. Uh, we know, for instance, that people, uh, attorneys, myself included as a writer, that we will often, our eyes will shift in a different direction than everybody else's because we're used to crafting words carefully mm -hmm. because words for us have meaning. Um, the other one that I, I totally uh, hate is uh, because it's caused so many problems is that eye aversion is related to deception. In fact, the, all the research shows that the liar actually engages in more eye contact, not less. And in particular, in the United States, where African-American children are taught to be contrite by looking down and not looking up at authority and many Latin children the same way. When you're being castigated, you look down. That police officers have often perceived that as being deceptive. And I find that singularly unctuous that they are not being taught the science of nonverbals and in so doing have, you know, ruined many lives. 
by assuming that somebody was lying merely because they were looking down as they were taught to uh, when they're being uh, polite. Um, you know, as far as nonverbals, it's our first language that we learn. It's the most accurate language that we know. It's the only way that we truly can convey uh, love and uh, conviviality and empathy. And uh, don't, don't become one that's looking for deception. Use it, use it to show how much you care about others and, uh, and use it to, to be empathetic with others. And that would be my, my, uh, my final word. I love this. Thank you so much, Joe. What a pleasure to learn from you and hear your perspective today. Thank you most importantly for your service, your great service to this country, especially in its protection of our most delicate and sovereign secrets. So thank you so much. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com.